Last week we, we, we finished our teaching series on the Father by, in, by doing a, one part of a two-part message so we can basically extend the teaching series on the Father a little bit further. And um, last week I was really looking to communicate this idea that intimacy with the Father and identity from the Father must always precede or come before activity for the Father. The intimacy with the Father and identity from the Father must always precede activity for the Father. Um, and actually, in a book I came across this week, uh, the lady was giving some advice for, for mums. I like to read books on motherhood in case it ever happens to me. Um, can you sort out this boom? <laughs> Quiet. Okay, great. Um, and the lady who was writing this book advised all the mums out there. She said, a fat soul is better than a clean floor. If you have to pick, pick the fat soul. Make sure you spend time enjoying God. So I shared that with Amy. And she said, yeah, but that doesn't mean you can get out of taking the bins out. And I was like, no, a fat soul is better than an empty bin um, or not. But it's really important for us. Uh, life is very busy and there's a lot to be done. And so many of us as Christians are very quick to get to that. What shall I do for God? Or what's God calling me to do, 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 do? So often we're so quick and keen to do that that we forget we're actually called human beings for a reason. We're supposed to be still before God, get to know him and enjoy him before we um, think about what we must do for him. Uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, who said that every Sunday when he gets up to preach, he sets himself on fire and lets the people come to watch him burn, which I thought was quite a good illustration. But it's this idea that the, the, thing, the gift that you bring most to the people that you're surrounded by isn't your talents and your activity and your brilliance and your intellect. The thing that you bring best to your work, to your home, to your kids, to your friends, to your husband, to your wife, the thing that you bring best of all is when you're... Uh, in love with Jesus the most, when you're on fire for God, so that your family members could say, uh, Dad hasn't taken the bins out, but he's on fire, and I want to watch him burn. <laughs> or Mum hasn't cleaned the floor, but she's on fire, and I want to watch her burn for God and see the impact that she can make as a result of that. Well, having began that last week, I'm, I'm wanting to communicate and speak this week on a slightly different tack. I want us to learn this and get this, that actually our identity isn't detached from our activity, which might sound like I'm undoing all the work I did last week. Our identity in God isn't actually detached from our activity for God, that they are two ends of the same stick. You pick up one end of the stick, you, you pick up the other end as well. And so last week, you see, you could have heard me say, oh, I don't need to do anything. I must just put my feet up and we'll just go find a mountain somewhere and climb it and have a, a kind of mountaintop experience with God and just detach from real world. You could do that, but uh, you make a friend on holiday, but you build a friendship in life. Actually, it's good to connect and engage with God, but he fills you and befriends you for a, a reason. Uh, sometimes you see people who spend so long doing their house up that they never actually turn it into a home by inviting people to come and live in it. You know that illustration? You can. You can, you can build a house as well as you like, but it takes people and memories to make a home. And so it is with the disciples of Jesus and with us. Uh, you can experience God personally for your life, but it's as you live your life that you understand his faithfulness to you in life's circumstances. But we're going to read from John 20 and see how Mary's words um, sunk in and made an impression on the disciples and what they then went on to do. I should say as well that um, for those of us, I know many of us have been around church for a long time, but for those of us who are particularly new, we read from the Bible every week 
And we want to communicate and teach what this book says because this is our authority. This is the only reason I stand up here and communicate to you. It's not to try to tell funny stories or to make us laugh or cry. It's to, it's to sit under the authority of the Word of God. This book, when properly understood, is entirely true and truthful and useful for our lives. But let's read John 20. I'm going to read from verse 11 to verse 23. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them they've taken away my lord and I don't know where they've laid him having said this she turned round and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So Mary experiences this intimacy with her master again. The disciples receive affirmation of their identity and then Jesus commissions them with this fairly strange scene if we're honest he breathes on them what we observe from the story is that this is the what happens when he breathes on them is the evening of the same day where they found the empty tomb and Mary had these words from Jesus it's the same day it's the first day of the week so it's Sunday which in their culture was like a Monday it was their work the beginning of the working week so people had been to work and yet they would picked up on the rumor mill these whispers and noises and these chatters that Jesus was back. <laughs> he was alive. And they would have spent the day talking amongst themselves, no doubt. Mary saying, yeah, I've heard him. This is the news. He, you're, you're, you're a brother of his. You're a son of his. He called your God. He called his God your God and his father your father. He, you're in. And they would have heard the day hearing these rumors and whispers and the hubbub. You can imagine the noise as people gather together in this upper room, having finished their working day. So many of them tired, scratching their heads going... What is all this about? We saw him decimated on the cross. And now you're telling me he's alive? That's ridiculous. And they have the door locked because they're scared. So they're meeting together and they're worried, thinking, if his body's missing, the Jews are going to blame us. So they're going to come and get us. So they've locked the door. They're scared. And it's there that Jesus, he appears in their midst. He appears in the room. Um, now, they shouldn't have been scared. Right? They should have known that Jesus was alive. They should have read the Bible in the Old Testament and understood. He, 
The disciples should have known better. And they shouldn't really be scared because they should know that God's with them. But they are, and that's where Jesus meets them. Jesus doesn't pick you up from where you should be. He picks you up from where you actually are. And that's important for us as we get going. God doesn't meet you where you should be. He meets you where you are. Many of you think, oh, I should. Often people use the language of should. I should read my Bible more. I, I should go to church more. I should pray more. I should give more. I should tell more people about Jesus. I should, I should, I should, I should. We live under a cloud of should. And maybe you should. But God doesn't meet you where you should be. He meets you where you are. And then he speaks these words to them. And, uh, and I just wanted to point out with the use of a table, <laughs> our identity and our activity are not entirely detached. So in verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. And as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So he gives them a purpose. You're sent ones. You're, you're off. I'm giving you a mission to go do. Which is good because we are people who need purpose. Uh, aimlessness, prolonged aimlessness doesn't bode well for our souls. We need purpose. I mean, the disciples had had plenty of purpose. They were the the guys on the block that everyone wanted to be. They made sure that everyone knew they were part of the in crowd. They'd been out healing the sick and casting demons out of people. Jesus said, you know, they'd walked into town and said, the master needs this donkey. And they took the donkey off people and and stuff like that. They were, the, they were the people who, well, let's take out our sword and fight. Yeah, we've got a mission. We're going to fight for God. And then they'd blown it. But they were people who needed purpose. And Jesus gives them this purpose. He gives them a mission for God. They're like the blue, you remember the Blues Brothers? We can't fail. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> it's just the most car wrecks ever featured in a film. Fact. Because they were on a mission from God. They could do what they like because no one can stop them. But what's the mission that Jesus gives them? Well, before we look at that, listen to the words that Jesus says. Um, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The activity of the church isn't evangelism or mission necessarily. It's not to go and do something that God isn't doing. The mission of the church is to join God in what he's already doing. That in that sense, our identity is that we are sent ones and we are part of the sending God. It's not like God says, go and do this thing and I'm going to watch from a distance. And yeah, I'll help along the way. Jesus says, look, the Father sent me. I'm sending the Holy Spirit and we're all sending you. In other words, God is and always has been a missionary God. And so mission and activity isn't just an offshoot of the church, and we have the missions department over here and then the the worship department over here. No, mission is the the whole basis for which the church exists. We're a sent people. God is a sending God. That's our identity, if you like, that we're sent people. In verse 22, Jesus then says this. He breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit gives us the power that we need Um, It's linked to the activity that he sends us. Now receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to need power to go and do this. And we're going to come back to that. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. As a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit. And he inside you cries out, Abba, Father. He's the spirit of adoption. You know that you're a son or a daughter because of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So he gives them this amazing 
promise. That we're people of promise. We're people who can proclaim the forgiveness of sins for people, which is very daunting. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've led someone to Christ. They've become a believer, and you've said those words, you're now forgiven. And if, I, I had that experience several months ago, and I found myself thinking, what, what an outrageous thing to say. What if they're not forgiven? What if I'm lying? What if they haven't really done all the things they needed to do? What if they're not really trusting Christ? Well, Jesus gives them this amazing promise. If you say they're forgiven, they can be forgiven because you're the gospel carrier. Because when people look to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness, they're forgiven. So you can proclaim this promise that your activities, that you're able to do that. Which actually, again, speaks of our identity. This gives us huge significance. I can't help talking in alliteration, I have to say. It's part of the curse of preaching. There has to be P's and S's for me to, my brain, for the world to not end. <laughs> because it's amazing significance that you have been licensed to forgive. James Bond may have his license, but you've got yours. Licensed to forgive because you are a gospel carrier. That God has entrusted you with this remarkable, remarkable significance. You're not a nobody in that sense. Your life is full of meaning and significance. And our identity, as we see as believers, is, is, is in no way detached from the promise that you, of the activity that you've got to go and do. So we are people of activity. We've got purpose, power, and promise. And you're people of identity. You've got significance. You've got the spirit. And you've been sent. You're a sent one of God. So the question isn't, are our identity and activity linked? Of course they're linked. The question is often, are you getting them in the right place? See, if you're looking to your vocation, your job, to give you all of, the, all of those things, it's going to fall short. But the thing is, when you lose your job, or when you lose a sense of self from a part of life that you were doing, your activity, well, you see that actually your activity was, your significance and purpose was never bound up in that job. It's bigger than that. As a human being, you're more than the job you work. You're more than the kids you look after, the spouse, the husband, wife that you're married to, the friends that you're, the friendship you're building, the community you're cultivating. You're much more than that. That God has given you a mission that is bigger than those things. And it transcends whatever you're doing with your hands. And it's able to be there. Now for the remainder of our time together, though, I just want to focus on this one. The Holy Spirit and power. I want us to talk a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Now... I want to say a couple of things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us new. Um, let me just point this out here. In Genesis chapter 1, this, this is the opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which is this strange, mysterious reference to the Holy Spirit. But what we see is that right in the opening verse of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's mentioned in, this, in the creation account. That the Holy Spirit is creative. He was there in the original creation of all things, hovering over the waters, which, which is the sense of brooding and foreboding and waiting to get his creative juices flowing, waiting to get his creative activity going. So that is how we're first introduced to the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, at the 
recreation moment where the new creation has come. He breathes and says, receive that Holy Spirit, which is an odd, which is an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you ever try to picture that scene. You try to picture some of the scenes in the Bible. This is up there with Jesus putting mud on someone's eyes and healing them, isn't it? It's a weird moment. And I always think, what did he do? Did he stand there and go, or did he go up to them individually and go, I just don't know. It doesn't say, but it's fun to let your imagination wander. But whatever happens, Jesus is making this prophetic promise. The Spirit is coming. And when he comes, he will make you new. We'll go on to talk about what he does. But it reminds me of the scene in, in, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, with Aslan. And uh, many of the believers or Aslan's people have been turned to stone by the witch. And so Aslan whoo, breathes on them after he's come back to life. He breathes on them and the stone is broken off and they're new people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He breathes into your life. He makes you new. But also this... Jesus is, is, is saying this so that people understand the Holy Spirit is the breath that comes from his mouth. So the words spirit and breath are, are the same in the old language. And it's the same idea that your breath is your spirit, is the wind that comes from you. It's that breath of God. And so Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is not a separate new thing that you've never heard of. No, he's from me. He is the, the New Testament because of the spirit of Jesus. Which means that he has the same personality as Jesus, who's the same in likeness as the Father. So the way that the Holy Spirit acts is going to be in the same guise and likeness as the way that the Father and the Son would want to behave and act as well. Which tells me, firstly, I don't need to be freaked out by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we're in church meetings or conferences, especially, people respond to encounters with the Holy Spirit in different ways. It's okay, we're human beings. When the spiritual world breaks into our space, it affects us in different ways. And the Holy Spirit wants to do different things with us. But it tells me, I don't need to be freaked out. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Oh, and I understand Jesus is a lovely man. I've read the gospel. I know the kind of personality that Jesus has. And so the Holy Spirit wants to do us good in the same way that he would. And also, I don't need to be freaked out because at the end of the day, I can just go up to them afterwards and say, what was going on? When you were shaking and something was going on with you, what was that about? And actually, we as a church want to have just that level of honesty and realness with one another. That if ever you see someone behaving in a church meeting that suggests, oh, that's different, you go up to them after and say, what was going on? What were you, why were you shaking? Why were you speaking that strange language? What is that all about? Or how did you get that prophetic word from God? We want to speak to people and ask them about it. So the Holy Spirit is from Jesus and he makes new. Um, elsewhere in the Bible it says that he's come to write the law on your heart if you're a Christian you have the Holy Spirit living inside you the the, the reason and the ability that you had even to become a Christian came from the Holy Spirit he came to take up residence in you the presence of God is in you you don't need to go visit so and so in this place and have have someone's hands laid on you you have the Holy Spirit in you The Bible, as I said, talked about writing the law of God on your hearts, which means that you as a Christian, your desires have changed. And whether you've experienced it too much or not, that's what it means to have the Holy Spirit, to be born again, to be remade. Jesus says, unless you're reborn, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. I remember as a a new Christian, 
just sensing over time that my appetite for activity had changed. The stuff that used to satisfy me didn't satisfy me in the same way now that I'm a believer. Rather like Alison sharing earlier about, well, I used to go to church and it meant one thing, and then suddenly it's like a light bulb went on and there was emotion and joy as my appetites changed. So the Holy Spirit makes us new, but the Holy Spirit also makes us bold. He makes us very bold. Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, in the beginning of Acts, he says this to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will get courage. You'll get guts. You'll feel braver than you used to. And you'll be able to be my witnesses. Yeah, in Jerusalem, the place you live, in Judea, among your friends, in Samaria, among the people that you don't get on with, and even to the ends of the earth. Talking to them, the ends of the earth is Seaford. They didn't even know it existed. France was the ends of the earth as far as they were concerned. And here we are, this pagan people living north of the, north of the Ghoul lands. And this is us. The Holy Spirit comes to give you power and courage. But how does he do that? Does he turn each of us into mini robocops or iron men and women kind of have just power emanating from us? And like when the Holy Spirit's flowing, don't touch me. Are we like mini superheroes? That would be awesome. The Holy Spirit's come. Receive. No, okay. Let's calm down. Like Street Fighter with the Adukin. Is that, is that what the Holy Spirit does? Is that how it works? I don't know. You, you read the book of Acts, right? That's what we've got to go on. You see, these people did have power when the Holy Spirit came on them. When people stood in Peter's shadow, they got healed. So there was a, an Avenger-like quality to the early apostles when the Holy Spirit came on them. Give them power. But actually, my observation is that the Holy Spirit gives you power by affirming you as a son and a daughter of God, and that makes you very brave. You see kids, reckless children, who know that their you know, person they're with can be trusted. They just leap off balconies, catch me, and jump. Oh, okay, got you, put you down, don't do that again. You know, that happens from time to time where one of my kids will say, Daddy, I'll turn around, and they'll be jumping. They'll be mid-air, like, oh, goodness. Okay. They do that because they're very brave. Why? Because they're coursing with power and courage. No, because they know that I'll catch them. Or they'll know that I'll at least try. When you know you're loved unconditionally by the creator of all things, when you know how deeply he loves you, it gives you courage. That's personally been my experience. There have been times when the Holy Spirit comes on us and I get fresh courage and boldness for the moment. I'll go and there's power. But the day-by-day experience of being a Christian is knowing that the more I know that I'm loved, the more the Holy Spirit tells me I'm loved, just the more naturally brave I can be. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think there ever comes a point where the Holy Spirit basically forces you to be brave. You still have to respond. You still have to be willing to go for it. A friend of ours, Simon Holly, tells a story in his church where um, he was trying to provoke the, the church to break through from fear. And he said to them, if ever you're with someone and you feel the Holy Spirit prompt you to pray for them and you're too scared, give me a call and I'll come around and do it. <laughs> and he was thinking, hopefully they won't do it because I'm too scared. But the next week, a lady phoned him and she said, I've got my plum around. <laughs> and he's just complained that he's got a bad wrist 
I, I want to pray for him, but I'm too scared. Can you? And he's like, oh, okay. So she passed the phone to the plumber and said, speak to my pastor. And, um, and he, Simon said there was this very awkward conversation where he basically said, he arranged a time to come and pray with him sometime next week. Anyway, they put the phone down. Uh, the lady's friend arrived at her house, and the two of them together mustered up the courage to pray for him there and then. They prayed for his wrist. He went home and talking to his wife in the evening, realized that he had increased mobility in his wrist. It was amazing. And so we started to have expectation. The week later came around and Simon went around and saw him and they prayed together. And as they prayed, he said there was heat all over his, his arm and his wrist was fully mobile again. That Sunday, this man, who for 40 years had been an atheist, came to church and became a Christian. It's exciting. And it happened because the Holy Spirit just gave a little nudge to a woman who said, I can, I can do this, or my pastor can do this. And then when my friend comes around, I can do this. The Holy Spirit comes to give us boldness and power. And actually, I, I, at this point, I was going to ask a couple of people to come and, come and share, but for various reasons, they weren't able to. Uh, but I know talking to so Helen Chisholm last summer, she went to a conference and has always wrestled with lies and believed a lot of lies about herself and hasn't been able to break free from that. She was filled with the Holy Spirit in a new way. And she experienced both the peace that comes from knowing you're loved by God and the power to break free from some of the lies that were holding her back. Ross Pavey's another one who a few years ago when we started out was filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time and for the first time in his life, had power and confidence and bravery to tell people about Jesus. And found he had a newfound just heart's desire for God and wanted to live for God in a new way. Certainly my story. When I was first filled with the Holy Spirit, my world was turned upside down. Because I was a Christian and I had the Spirit of God in me. But suddenly someone prayed for me on an Alpha course and it was a strange sensation. I felt this feeling like electricity in my body, and I thought, this is strange. And I felt hot and cold, and I sat down, and this rush of, I don't know what it was. And the next day, I found myself having the confidence to express my faith in Jesus in a way that I'd never had before. Now, you will see me up here and think, oh, he's an extrovert. He's always just loved having people to listen to him. <laughs> You can talk to my wife. She can tell you, that's not true. Um, but when I first became a Christian, I had a longing to, to tell people about Jesus, but none of the guts required to do it. Um, I'd had a bad experience. I think I became a Christian, and I came home and said to my mom, you need to become a Christian or you're going to go to hell. And that didn't go very well. And so I basically thought, I'm never doing that again. And just kind of I went to church and I'd stand there in the meetings and the worship would be going and I'd, my, my spirit inside would be going, this is great, I love Jesus, and my foot would tap. And that was about as far as I'd get in ex terms of expressing my love for God. I just didn't have the confidence to do that. And then the Holy Spirit came on me and filled me. And ever since then, I've found myself having just a new level of, ah, I know I'm loved and I can wave my arms in circles or lie on the floor or kneel down or just sit down quietly. I don't care. I'm free because the Holy Spirit has set me free to express myself. <laughs> I'm a, no, we all express ourselves in different ways. Don't get me wrong. You haven't got to suddenly become a different person. But the Spirit gives you boldness and courage to be the you you've always wanted to be, but you've never had the power to do it.
And the Holy Spirit comes and says, you can. Because the Holy Spirit goes, you're loved by God. Who cares if they think this and they think that? The Father loves you. Ah, oh, I can do this and that. And so after I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I think I've said this before, but I went through a period of kind of expressing my delight in sung worship times like we've just had, dancing. And then God challenged me and said, don't just do that in public, do it in private. So you're not just showy in front of people. So I was at home in my parents' house and no one was out, no one was in. So I cranked up the, the music, Soul Survivor 2004, and um, danced around my living room. And for some reason, I took my shirt off and was waving around like this. I was just like David and dancing before the Lord. I was so happy. I was like, God. And I stood up on the sofa, my shirt off, I went, Jesus, with this worship music on. And I turned around and my sister's at the door going, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, nothing. It's just what they tell us to do at church. We do this and we <laughs> dance around naked in the woods and drink poison. That's normal, Vex, isn't it? We do that. No, we don't do that. But the Holy Spirit gives us courage and confidence to do things that we've always wanted to do, but have never had the guts and courage to do it. And what you see in the lives of the disciples is that the Holy Spirit affirms their identity as sons and gives them power to live as disciples. And throughout the book of Acts, what you observe is that it isn't just the one-off Pentecost where Peter, this coward, stands up in front of a a crowd of over 3,000 and preaches. It's not just that one-off, but throughout the book, there's fillings and fresh fillings and fresh fillings. And the image that comes to mind is, is that we are like boats traveling across a lake. And what you need to get from one side to the other is not one big one big gust of wind, and that's it. Now, if you just get one big gust of wind, you'll get halfway across and then go, I'm stuck. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit in 1970. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. It changed my life in a big way. The question we should ask one another isn't, have you ever been filled with the Spirit, but when were you last filled with the Spirit? And if it was longer than a week, two weeks, a month ago, let's pray. Because a boat needs constant supplies of wind to get across. Now, I was going to bring some balloons here and have a challenge because I think also if you're having a party, the other image is if you're having a party, you think to have a party, we need lots of balloons. But here's the challenge. You're only allowed one gust of air to get that party started, to get that balloon blown. <laughs> you might get one balloon if you're lucky. You're never going to have a party. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. One filling. It's good. But it's, you need more. You need more. I need more. We live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. We need more of the Holy Spirit, more fillings, more drenchings, more times of saturations by God. And that's going to help us to live as Christians. The Holy Spirit affirms our identity and our activity. So let's respond together. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. We've got some time. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh, to give us strength and courage. And my guess is, my assumption is, that all of us need more of the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. So we're going to begin this by having all of us stand in a moment, and we're going to just pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. And I'd invite you to ask yourself, please, Holy Spirit, fill me. And then we'll probably say, we'll hear what the Holy Spirit's saying and say, why don't these people come out if you want, if you want this? And like, Let's just lay hands and we'll pray and we'll see how things go. Does that sound okay? Great, so I'm going to get the band out. I'll pray. And why don't you stand to your feet for me.
Lord Jesus, thank you that you have sent your spirit into the world. The Holy Spirit is here among us. And he comes, he comes to draw us deeper into relationship with God. And he comes to give us power and boldness and courage, and bravery to live as Christians in a hostile world.